0: Today we have Iona. She's brutally honest. She's survived severe body issues and she's come through to the other side. She's now an author and an inspiration. Iona, welcome. I was looking through your manuscript and it's so interesting. I feel like there's some poetry in there and some writing in there. Talk to me about your style. Sure.
2: It wasn't intentional in the sense of I wasn't trying to put on any kind of particular voice. I've grown up as a creative person. I went to art school before I moved to the US to play field hockey. So I've always been maybe a writer at heart, a creative at heart, and I think that there is something it brings a different level perhaps of feeling to a story when you're able to maybe look at it from a few Different ways. So both be able to talk about it perhaps in a more artistic and abstract way, and then also in a very clear and direct, straightforward way. And I would say that's really a reflection of me in general. Like I love creativity. I've worked as a creative director for most of my twenties. I'm now 31, but for most of the 20s, I was either a journalist or I was a creative director. And so, but I'm also I'm a direct person, uh, probably a product of growing up in Scotland amongst many things. And so
0: it feels like the book reflects my personality. Tell me about Scotland. I've never been, don't really know people from there. What's it like? I don't know what the weather's like where you are, but at the moment in
2: Boston, it's what my mom would call Drich as in it's raining and it's cold and it's overcast. and honestly, I feel so alive today in a way that I haven't for months because I just I grew up in an overcast environment. And it's just how I thrive. I will say I was not built for the summer heat. I think that Scotland in general is, we're pretty straight shooters. And um, There's definitely a darkness in the humor and a dryness in the interactions, which is something that when I moved to the US, there was such honesty and sincerity and immediate friendship, which I found very disconcerting. <laughs> So I think it it was definitely an adjustment for me, but also, I mean, I've been here for a third of my life now, and I would say that moving to the US, although it wasn't immediate, was a required step in me healing, one, but also to perhaps having a bit more openness to feelings and emotions in general, which I think was something that in my childhood and growing up anyway, it wasn't really done pretty much like sweep it under the carpet, we're
0: not feeling things. What else stuck out about the differences between Scotland and the US?
2: Something that I felt here deeply when I first moved here was that no one got my humor. Like no one was able to like bounce off me in that sort of bantery, dark humor kind of way that I really missed that when I first moved here until I found my people. And so it got a little bit better. But that was one thing that really struck me about the US was that difference in humor. And it took, me, it took me a while to acclimate to the way that people talk to each other here and what they actually meant when they said, hey, it was almost like they'd be like, hey, I'm very overly familiar, but not particularly interested in continuing the conversation. That was at least
0: my experience of it. What is it like when you greet people in Scotland? Fuck off. <laughs> No, I'm
2: kidding. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like, hey, but you know, I mean, pre COVID. It's like, hey, stay 10 yards away. We'll, we'll earn this together. I would say. Have you been to New York? I lived there for a while. Yeah, I came here and I'd never visited the US before I was recruited having never visited. I turned up in Syracuse, New York thinking it was New York City. And that was my kind of experience of things. I, I can't even say I was pre Googling, I just didn't research, so I showed up, and Syracuse, New York, was where I was. It's a wonderful university, and still like very fun memories of it. But yeah, once I once I moved to New York, and once I, I mean, I live in Boston now. It's a wee bit softer, but with its own version of edge, I would say. But yeah, once I got to the coasts, like the true coasts, it felt more European. <laughs> Or at least it felt a bit more Scottish in a way that perhaps it didn't when I first moved here. You're like, oh, there's that coldness I needed. I know. Oh my goodness, I'm fucking
0: freezing. Great. (laughs) You're making me feel really cold. (laughs) Yeah. That is hysterical. Have you gone back to visit Scotland since you've been here?
2: Yeah. I used to go back every year and then... Actually, through my sort of mid to late 20s, I was really battling the immigration system here. It became very challenging for me to travel. It was always a risk every time I left. And I was also at that point very much, I would say, hiding in general. Like, I would not travel because of my weight, which I'm sure is something we'll get into, but I wouldn't travel. So things like my grandpa died and I didn't go to the funeral because I couldn't not be in control of my diet and exercise and things like that so there was a definite period of my life in my mid to late 20s where I was here nearly three years where I was here and then over the last couple of years as I've really done a lot of my own personal work and also got my green card and all that kind of thing I was much happier to go back and now of course COVID makes it weird again but yeah I love going back and my partner and I are getting married there next year and Scotland has a huge place in my heart.
0: Well, congrats on getting married.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I met Sean in my mid-20s, so when I was 25, I'm 31 now. We met through CrossFit, which we were both doing somewhat well at the time. And I just felt like I met, he felt like home. And then I found out that his mom was Irish and that she was an Irish immigrant. And I was like, I, there was something about you. <laughs> I just knew. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It was the muscle ops or? Oh Christ,
2: don't even get me started. I know, I know.
0: <laughs> Are you still deadlifting?
2: So my partner, Sean and I, we own a movement studio in Boston here. So it's called Body of Work. And it's a studio inspired by movement culture, which is more of working just with the human body and using it in more of a, an expressive way. We also do, we do loads of strength, gymnastic style strength, but we also have influences from martial arts, capoeira, dance, and there's also a playful aspect to it. It's very much Sean's passion, and I support him in that, but if anyone asks, like, who runs Body of Work, everyone
0: be like, oh, it's Sean and I own his studio.
2: Like, I can still pull 300 pounds off the ground, I just don't do it often.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of weight.
2: That's what overexercising will do to you. <laughs> But I was over-exercising and
0: under-eating too. So who knows what the
2: real reasons were.
0: (laughs) So yeah, I have gone through periods of that pretty much my whole life. So I want to delve into that. Sure. When did you start having issues with food?
2: So I would say the first times that I really began to either binge or very consciously under-eat was around the age of 11. But I would say prior to that, I was very conscious of being small. Like I was always referred to as like wee Iona, small Iona. I was also a bit of a black sheep as well. And there's something that felt very special about being small. In contrast to, I have two siblings. So my wee sister and my older brother, but they much more look the same as each other. And I was that middle one that just was a little bit Contrary, I think was the words that was used to describe me. I was also pretty talented at a lot of things. Like I grew up top of the class at pretty much everything. And I was a real perfectionist as well. And that only grew as I got older. And also I began very much working quietly and secretly. So I felt complete inability to be bad at anything like I had to be good at everything and it didn't really matter how hard I had to work, how early I had to get up, how secretly I had to work in order to be the best. And I think at a certain point, that pressure within my system became excruciating and controlling my body and almost expressing that pressure physically, that really manifested physically in me actually shrinking my body. That became like another way for me to feel powerful and almost show my work in a way that strengthened me rather than weakened me or made me look like I was working too hard. And that's really when it started. It really started when I was 11. And then over the course of my teens, I was representing my country in field hockey. There was definite pressure around that. I was also head girl at my school, straight A student, so on and so forth. And the pressure of that perfectionism. Controlling my body became the way that I expressed just how how silently and invisibly I was suffering. Like on the surface, it was all like sunflowers and rainbows. Ayona doesn't need any help. Ayona's is perfect. Ayona's is good at everything, and that expectation, which I was reflected back to me, not necessarily. like a lot from my parents but definitely from teachers friends it was all Iona's perfect Iona's so good everything comes so easier to her she's got nothing to complain about and I was like I'm fucking human too like underneath all of this it felt like my gifts and my competence dehumanized me and the body became the way that I expressed that pain that was inside me that I didn't feel safe in any way to admit because it felt like an admission of weakness Did you ever have a time where you lashed out at others? No. This is the other sort of, I would say, interesting way that pain really got very embedded in me was that I was terrified of upsetting anybody. Like that was another part of being a perfectionist was actually being universally liked. The expression of anger, lashing out, anything like that, felt like a very unsafe and inappropriate way for me to ever express anything. So I would say that there was a lot of internalized aggression. There was a lot of screaming inside of the self, but there was never really any point where it was projected out in an overt way. So I definitely, as I got older and definitely into my 20s, I became more covertly aggressive, I would say, like I would undermine a lot of women. I would hate them. And I would do a lot of like silent chatting because it felt that every single, you know what it's like, you grow up maybe in in a small town or you're in a school and you're the best. And then as you go out into the real world, you realize, wow, there's fucking incredible people on every side of the street walking towards me. And every single one of them became my competition. That felt like I was competing for scarce limelight. The pressure of making sure that I was best in every single one of them at everything was excruciating. And the only way that I felt like I could maintain my, my perfection was by cutting them off at the knees. And so that is something that I would do, not in an overt way, not in a way that I would talk loudly. I was very good at talking quietly
0: about people, definitely. One of your chapters in your book is called Why We Make Women the Enemy. Yeah,
2: I think this is my, my coach at Syracuse, an incredible force of a woman. Uh, she told me a story once about female lobsters. And to this day, I've never Googled it because it just felt true to me. And I write about this in my book. She told me the story that male lobsters, when thrown in a pot, there we go, when thrown in a pot of boiling water, they'll build ladders out of their claws and help each other out, whereas female lobsters lock their claws together and hold each other down. And this was the story that she told me, and I didn't even, I didn't Google it, I didn't research it, because I was like, that is who I am. I'm pretty confident, or not confident, I'm not proud in any way, but I don't think that my experience of seeing other women as my, as my competition and enemy is unique to me. I think this is something that a lot of high-achieving women struggle with: is seeing other women as not allies, not sisterhood, not anything of that, but as direct competition and something that we need to minimize or reduce or tamp down. And again, I'm not saying that for everyone, but I would say that that was definitely true for me. My book is called ghosts i talk about ghost women the women that hide in plain sight and suffer invisibly i i am not the only ghost woman that lives in this world i was held down by so many other women along the way without even realizing it because we were we were all so locked in our invisible battles and that's what i talk about in that chapter there's a way that women turn on each other And also in the power of that, I believe that that can be reversed out. And I've seen that happen in my healing in the sense that as I've become more loving and accepting of myself, the empathy and understanding I have for other, especially other women like me, like high achieving, strong, like perfect quote woman, the empathy I feel when I see them still locked in that invisible battle, I believe that we can harm each other. I believe we can also heal together. I think there's nothing more powerful than women who are actively healing in community. That was how I did a lot of my initial work. I still remember my first call. It was in my group call. I was, it was on Zoom, (laughs) modern therapy. And I was, so my Zoom little photograph was sitting next to this other woman and she was Late 40s, a doctor. She had curly hair. She was pretty overweight. I remember scanning all of the women on the call, being like, "Am I the thinnest? Am I the thinnest? Am I the thinnest?" And I centered on her, and I was like, "This woman is obscene. Like, she's clearly let herself go. and um, that's so embarrassing. So, at least I'm still thin. Like, I'm suffering, but I'm I'm fucking thin." And then this woman started talking because we all had to share like why we were there, and it was my story that was coming out of her mind. Like it was, it was her expression of what she had endured. She was me, like I saw myself sitting there in almost in her living room, It's like I am you. Luckily I got here 10, 15 years before you did. But in that moment, I realized one, that I wasn't that special in the sense that my suffering wasn't that unique. I think that's something that a lot of us get in a hole about. No one could possibly understand the complexity and depth of my suffering. It's not to say that we aren't suffering. It's not that we're not in pain, but other people are feeling that too. And in that moment of hearing this woman who I had off the bat judged so harshly speak with such honesty and vulnerability and also share an experience that basically was mine, in that moment, I felt like something shifted in me cuz i was alone in my pain but i wasn't unique in it i was part of something more and so now that i'm almost i don't want to see on the other side of it cuz i feel like the journey towards understanding yourself is never over but now that i feel like i've worked through the major issues that i had around thin body now that i can look back and see other women still very much there that's why i wrote this book we don't know what we don't know until we hear a story from someone who talks and sounds like us. And that's why I talk very vulnerably. I share some things that are really embarrassing. I don't try to make it flowery or anything like that. I don't try to dress up or say that the journey towards healing food and body is easy because it's not. I speak honestly. It's work. But we can all do it. And I just want that for her. I want that for a woman like me. I want that for a woman not like me. Um, There's so much that we endure alone. um, And by writing this book and by working with women now, supporting them in their healing journey, I feel like I'm giving back to what was given to me when I needed it most.
0: That's amazing.
2: Have you continued to keep up with that woman? It's a good question. I haven't. She definitely sort of tailed off towards the end of the program. I didn't even ever really have like a one-on-one conversation with her, but there are other women who I have, I did like a sort of inventory of women I have hurt along the way. And over the last year or so, I've been apologizing. I've either asked to schedule a call or I've connected with them on social media or something like that. Um, And I've extended an apology for who I was. Not excusing it in any way that I wasn't in a lot of pain. That's not an excuse. And I don't always think in our own healing, we don't necessarily need to get an apology from someone. There's a lot that we can do ourselves, but it felt like an important step for me and mine. And not one that I was able to get to immediately. Like I'm a few years into this now, where I'm at that point where that feels like something that I should do and need to do. And I found it very powerful to openly admit that I was wrong, and I've been blown away by the compassion that I've been met with from
0: other women. I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. I would love to know about some of the women that you've heard along the way. Sure,
2: it didn't really matter who they were. If in the moment it felt like they were trampling in my spotlight, Like, they were fair game as far as I was concerned. There was definitely a woman on my team in college. She was one of the ones that I would, like, get with my quiet chatting. And I write about this in the book. One day I was doing my little talking through the side of my mouth about someone. And then I realized that she was sitting right in front of me on the bus. (laughs) And she heard every single word I said. At the time, I wasn't... I apologized, but I wasn't really able to apologize. It took us like three years. I remember sitting next to like I was in my final year at Syracuse. I was training like a machine. I was the only person on campus left. Everyone else had gone home to their families. I was doing the I'm here alone situation. Um, And she happened to be in summer school as well. And I bumped into her at the field house and I was like, fuck you of all people (laughs) and I remember like we sat down on the pavement sidewalk whatever you call it we just sat there and just started talking to each other and then over the course of those like eight weeks we were the only people there we were both really suffering like her in a different way from me but she has her own thing I was working through my thing but she was there for me in a way and we actually were able to build like a really beautiful friendship from that even and that was like in my early 20s where I wasn't necessarily doing any of my own healing stuff but fast forward to like literally maybe a couple of months ago we've talked over the years she comes she's come to Boston a couple of times but I was talking to her on Instagram I hadn't talked to her in a while and I decided 'Cause I was I write about the story in the book. I decided to like formally apologize. I was like, I've never formally apologized to you for the way that I was then. And I like, I'm sorry, like from the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry. And she replied and was like, I really appreciate that, not because I was expecting it, but rather even her hearing me, like I talk on Instagram a lot about this healing work, because I try and share it with many people as possible. And she was like, sometimes it was really challenging for me to hear you talk about this and say that you had been a bitch, but that you'd never actually acknowledged that you were a bitch to me. So she wasn't unkind. She was just like very clearly able to communicate how I had made her feel, how perhaps it had been reciprocated in some ways. And it felt like I remember like putting my phone down because it was like, she she's in the UK, so she's on a different different time zone. But I just remember being like, that was profound, that I was able to acknowledge being wrong, being so completely imperfect, being so dark in a way, but to be met with someone saying, it's okay, it's okay. I forgive you, there's something powerful about that.
0: That's fantastic. I think apologizing makes you such a a better person.
2: I talk a lot about we can heal so much alone. Like we can do so much internal work. But I also talk about bringing your healing to bear in relationships that matter the most. So bringing it out to play in the real world. And it's not that these friendships with women who I'm forgiving, it's not that we're, we're forming these deep and meaningful friendships, but it's an example of being brave like I talk so much to my woman about like bravery honesty that's all we really have like you have to be brave you have to be honest about where you are and you have to be vulnerable if we've come into contact with them
0: and hurt them there's responsibility there I think good thing you're getting your practice in now before you get married (laughs) sure (laughs) yeah
2: I'm lucky I have a wonderful partner who is also like introspective and I think that he met a very different version of me. I'm not the same woman that he met. He's definitely not the same man I met but there was space held on both sides which I think tested our relationship in many ways but only made it stronger.
0: If he could love me when I was that way
2: you know it gives me
0: hope. Has he loved you through ups and downs and weight? Yeah,
2: it was, he never really cared. That was always, it was my thing. And I think that that's always what it has really been. It was never really about, weight was never about being beautiful to me. It was never about that. It was about, it was about the power that it gave me and the recognition of work, hard work done to myself. That was, that was what shrinking gave me that sense of superiority. Like I can whittle myself down to like single digit body fat. Look how lazy you are. Like I think that that was was how it would go. I was never like a tiny skinny person. I was strong in my smallness. That's what it gave me. And actually having to let that go and finding other ways to be, to feel solid and to feel powerful without having my body as the way that I did that that was a huge part of and a very challenging part of healing was letting go of that small worked tiny body like that was that took some grieving (laughs) I'll be honest because I I loved the way I looked when I was hurting the most but it was it was exactly that it was truly embodied suffering and being in Having, I talk about this in my book, call it the reckoning. Sometimes when you have such a high capacity to work, you have such a high capacity for pain, you have to be brought to your knees in order to choose a new way. And that was true for me. I was in so much emotional pain that even though I fucking loved the way that I looked when I was small, that was no longer enough. Like I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, I cannot, maintain this body anymore it is killing me like I wake up every day wanting to smother myself with a pillow like it doesn't matter how small I get it's never going to be enough and everyone has their different I would say moment of reckoning like that was mine it was like I literally cannot diet anymore this will kill me I honestly want to know what that diet looked like it was just for me this sounds terrible I was always fucking furious that I wasn't anorexic. I was maniacal in my control, but I wasn't ever able to be anorexic. So, my experience of food and body was always compensation. So, it was restriction, pretty low, extreme binges, and a lot of exercise. And I would say, like, you can, people look at my body now all the time still and say, wow, you're really muscular. This armor was built in response. My physical body is still melting away from so many years of of compensation, like so many hours and hours spent in the gym, tracking and weighing all my meals all the way through, checking in with my online nutrition coach, her cutting my calories every week, me being like, well, I'm accountable and I can't break rules. So here we fucking go. And over the course of my like mid to late twenties, I started using weightlifting because it's a weight class sport, every year I would choose the weight class that was below where I would say I would naturally sit. And I would cut for however long, like cut my weight two or for two or three months, just existing on nothing, training like a fiend so that I would get into my weight class and then just hope to fucking God that I'd find a way to maintain that. Of course I never did because like I was in starvation mode the rebounds were always monstrous. Um, But because of my ability to use exercise, no one really saw those massive fluctuations. Like they were massive fluctuations to me, but I was only ever moving like five to seven pounds in any direction at any one time. But to me, it felt like monstrous oceanic tides. I think also like this pulling apart of, either being like shit on a shoe or feeling like the most powerful person in the world, just within a few pounds of body weight. That's another thing that I was so much part of my journey, like this tension that is created when you can feel both incredibly superior and confident. And I think that feeling like a fraud internally, just those internal ruptures, it's just impossible to ever feel one way about yourself like that's that roller coaster so many people talk about it like the diet binge roller coaster it's like I'm amazing I'm a piece of shit I'm amazing I'm a piece of shit I always talk about healing as being like horribly mediocre for women who have been used to this like insane up and down learning how to find comfort in what I would call like mediocrity doesn't have to be mediocre like I I'm so much happier now than I ever was but getting comfortable with just like nothing happening on a given day, but just feeling okay. When you're used to, I'm amazing.
0: I'm a piece of shit. I'm amazing. I'm a piece of shit. It can be really challenging. Can you go to a restaurant without thinking about what you're getting ready to eat?
2: Yeah, totally. Sometimes like even thinking about that makes me emotional. When I think about what I used to endure, if, my partner was like, let's go out for dinner. It was like a fucking meltdown. <laughs> I don't want to in this case like undersell how hard it was to go from such insane restriction to what I would call taking the power out of food or food freedom or whatever you want to call it. This was something that I had to very consciously decide that it was a priority. I am taking the power out of food. I am never dieting again. This was a promise that I made to myself. And so I had to throw out all the, what I would call the tools or the weapons of dieting, all the measuring cups, all the things I used to weigh things on. I'm no longer allowed to turn over a cereal packet. I don't count numbers. I don't count anything. And I had to learn what hunger and fullness felt like in my body. Like I would sit down at lunch and be like, what is it like to eat? (laughs) <laughs> like, what am I supposed to feel? Because when we dehumanize food and turn it into this tool or weapon that we're using to control ourselves, we we turn it into a calculation rather than I'm just feeding my human body so that I can do, go on to the next thing. Like, food becomes your life. And so learning how to put food in its place, like, This is something that I do to support my fucking life. It isn't my life. Um, It was a very conscious and like every single meal we're working on this today. And then two two resources that were invaluable for that were Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Intuitive Eating was huge. I read the book front to back. I still have it. I work through it with clients where it's appropriate. The workbook and then also... The Fuck It Diet by Caroline Duner, which is, I mean, I like her style because she's very direct. But she's basically like, you just need to fucking eat. Don't overanalyze it. It's going to feel fucking uncomfortable. Let's just go. And here are all the reasons why you, you can never diet again. And in, in the moments when I was looking for honesty, she gave that to me. And the book that I've written is very different, but it feels like my own dose of here's the fucking truth. Like read it. Reading this won't heal you. You have to do your work. I think that that's something that I'm I'm so big on. Healing doesn't heal itself. You don't just buy a purchase, a coaching package with someone and you're done. You can't buy healing. You have to, it's work. You can call it soul work, you can call it homework, you can call it healing work, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. If you're in a place where you're suffering and when the pain is deep, you have to go like straight at that and allow yourself to feel it and know that it's going to be uncomfortable for a while. I felt like I was like barely keeping my head up water. And then suddenly, within a few months, faster than I thought, honestly, my feet, Hit solid grime, and suddenly I was like, I don't even know how many calories are in that anymore. I don't have to exercise today. I don't have to do any of this. It was like, oh, I got my life back, but I'd never even really had a life in the first place. I've, I've been working since I was five. It feels like I've been working so hard to be perfect and good at everything and impenetrable for so long. I didn't even know what I liked. I still don't know if I know what I like. I feel like in the last year or so, I've been really feeling into or being able to see for things to settle. And be like, I actually love writing. Creatively, I get to give. It gives me so much back. It feels like a true exchange. This is actually a, this is an expression of my gifts in a pure way. What was your breaking point? It really, it really was when I would start diets and then break the rule immediately. So I was very compliant when I had a diet and a vision. I would go for it. And it was like, there were binges, but then I would just compensate and it would always be trending down. But the moment or the, I would say it was over the course of a couple of months when I broke, quote broke, is when I could not stick to my own rules. Like I, I could no longer follow my own rules and my body was starting to just like I couldn't even get out of bed like l- like lethargy tiredness it would just fucking slam me down I would like try to sit up and then like ugh. and then one one whole week I took off work and I ate almost 10,000 calories every single day because I just like I was like I just I I I just need to eat all of this food there was, like so many years and years and years of restriction and I was at that point where my body didn't look how I wanted it. The exercise I could barely do, I was injured. And I was like, I'm just going to sit here and be the fucking disgusting pig that I am. And then, like, in that week, I was like, this is really bad. Like, this is not normal. This isn't, this is, this is just who I, who are you? Like, what are you even doing? This is insane. And around that time, I began to like, this is it. And it was also around that time where we opened our studio. So we were opening our studio and I was this person. My fiance is like this incredible movement practitioner who walks the walk and I'm over here, like barely able to be a human being. That was a huge incentive towards my, I have no right to own this studio. <laughs> Welcome people in if I'm judging their weights and immediately thinking, like all of these things about them because it's a reflection on I feel about myself. Why would anyone ever want to be here?
0: Did you ever wanna puke after you ate that many calories?
2: It's another thing that I was always infuriated by, not like a second on my list to not being able to be anorexic was being not able to throw up. Like I, I never
0: could, I tried, I mean, I tried so many times. What advice would you give to somebody who's you?
2: It's challenging because I truly believe that you have to be ready and I don't think that that's something that can be told to someone um, necessarily like you see these interventions with folks who are alcoholics or with drug addiction and that kind of thing food to me manipulation of the body to me feels different in the sense that food is still something that you need like that was the thing that I would always I was like I just wish I never had to eat again because then I'd be good I truly believe with food and body and also the way that it interacts even culturally with women and the way that we are perceived and how we're supposed to look and what's celebrated and what's shamed. In order for you to be ready to heal your relationship with food and your body, you have to be ready. Whether we even realize that we're in it or not, as women, I mean men too, but women especially, like we are fodder for like cultural like oppression and dieting and manipulation of the body is one of those. And I think that the ultimate fuck you to all of that is to say, I am no longer enrolled in this bullshit. And I think that when perhaps you're first starting your healing journey, it feels a lot more personal than that. It's like, no, I just can't, I'm in a lot of pain. I just can't do this anymore. But once your eyes open, once you see the bullshit everywhere, It makes me so angry. I care so much about it, not just because I had a personal painful experience with it. It fucking infuriates me that we are being held down this way. And the only way that we cannot be is to choose to say, we're done. We need to build the ladder like the men. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I think you're beginning to see some hat tips towards that in the ways that perhaps companies are beginning to represent more diverse bodies, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations, but it's still very much like performative, I would say at this point. I think there's some companies that do walk the walk. I think there's definitely individuals that do walk the walk, but this is something that in order for it to truly change, it has to become just something that becomes completely abhorrent and clearly wrong. What's next for you? my book is called ghost why perfect women shrink and it's going to be released early december early to mid december i also i mean i work one on one with women who want to dive deep we do deep six month like healing work together and i'm also going to be launching either an online or a group coaching program which runs in parallel with the book and why teach in it um in the new year so that's what i'm going to be up to
0: That is so exciting. I do have one more question. I would love to know how did you find Scribe Media and what was that process like?
2: I found Scribe Media through my best friend in Austin who happens to work there. (laughs) I met Megan through a Facebook connection. I lived in Austin for all of six months in my early 20s when I was working at Google and she somehow thought i was a good person even though during that time i was not in my best shape we stuck together for the last however many years and when i was ready to write this book which has always been a dream of mine although i never had anything to write about nor the energy to write it when i finally had something worth writing she was like these are the guys for you
0: I feel it's like everybody that I've interviewed that is ending up writing yeah. their book through Scribe, I've loved. That's why I was like, whoa, how did you find that? Yeah. Yeah. Luckily enough through, through my friend. Amazing. Okay. Let people know how they can connect with you.
2: You can find my website, IonaHolloway.com. And then I'm mostly active on Instagram, Iona Holloway. Post there often.
0: Awesome. And you can e-
2: email me to info at IonaHolloway.com.
0: I will put that in the show notes. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> It's been amazing connecting with you. Thank you so much for being open and sharing your story with me. Of course. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I cannot wait for my dad's response. Here we go.
1: All right. What a very interesting story of Iona. Isn't that really also a related story to anyone that is a perfectionist that wants to be the best at everything that they do? and wants to do everything perfectly, whatever it might be. I found also very interesting, in her case, she was had a lot of talent, was good in school, good in writing, good in sports. She used her, her weight as her controlling factor in life, where she could actually hide her feelings or take it out on herself, rather than taking it out on others when she would get frustrated. I think that's happened to other people where they, work on their body as a way of taking out whatever their problems are and building on their perfection by thinking that they can make themselves have a perfect body. I thought that was interesting. What I thought was interesting
0: was how she viewed others. Well,
1: you know, what's funny is that I, I don't know if it's the same thing for, for men and women, if there really is that clash of in competition. A lot of times, at least when I was competing, men seem to it's like the honor of the fight, you know, where if it's been a, a tremendous battle, they don't necessarily hold any animosity. A good sportsman, I always tried to be, and my dad always as well, where you have to give credit to the your opponent. If they were able to battle you and beat you, it makes you tougher and stronger to come out the next time, you know? But I think uh, women, uh, it's a very interesting concept where some women look at other women as the competition and they don't really have anything nice to say about any one of their own species because they feel like whatever the matter might be, if it's in dating or whether it's in schoolwork, that uh, it's always their competition and they don't want to have anything to do with them. That camaraderie ship, I think, is more... And team play sometimes is more with men than with women. But I can't tell you that is uh, the general rule. You know, like I said, just from some of my own observations, but there's a lot of women that are good team players too. There's a lot of women that can do things that uh, men do. We can't necessarily uh, put a general scheme on it because we certainly can get fooled very easily when we uh, label things and think that we know the answer when a lot of times you don't know the answer unless you see the game played. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Ren 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.